You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation. She just wants to be beautiful. She goes unnoticed. She knows. No limits, she craves attention, she praises an image she prays to be sculpted by the sculptor. Oh, she don't see the light that's shining deeper than the eyes can find it. Maybe we are made of blind souls. She tries to cover up her pain and cut her woes away. Cause cover girls don't cry. After the face is made. Uh, the audio gets put on FM Wednesday night, 6 to 7 p.m. So I'm excited about today's topic. I think it's something that's very um, misunderstood and maybe even timely, depending on your situation and who you're stuck at home with. Um, today's topic is anger. What is constructive anger? What does that look like uh, compared to destructive anger? And our show is called Lose Your Temper, A Conscious Exploration of Anger. We'll be looking at options um, other than avoiding conflict or being passive in the face of it. Our guest today, Alistair Mose of Moose Anger Management. And so, Alistair, we're hoping that you're going to show us how to emerge from conflicts rather than having to um, avoid them, feeling at least, if not good, but positive, so that it's helpful and not just something that happens to you and you're a victim of. Alistair uh, calls himself an international anger management expert. He's been working with people worldwide as a counselor, educator since 1989, and as an anger management specialist in private practice since 1995. His client base is diverse from high-performance business leaders, gold medal-winning Olympic and professional athletes, and people who are close to homeless. He says anger is an equal opportunity emotion. He regularly presents workshops to varied groups from police to teachers, as well as simply individuals who may be struggling with anger. And he runs groups, anger management groups, um, the ones we're going to be talking about today for men currently online with Moose Anger Management. He's also co-author, along with his partner, Alejandra Proano, of the book, Lose Your Temper, a conscious exploration of anger. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So it's an interesting field you're in. What inspired you to work with anger? I think ultimately what inspired me to work with anger was growing up in a family that did not deal with anger very well or any of the emotions very well for that matter. And so people just didn't talk about a lot of things in the family that I grew up or they didn't talk very well about them. So either things would be avoided completely or there'd be some kind of big blow up or people would just talk around the edges of things or what have you, but they, they weren't dealt with well. And one of the things that really inspired me, you know, my, my dad and and my, both my parents are, are long gone, but uh, my mother died very suddenly in 1979, and we just didn't talk about it. Like we, we didn't talk about it. There wasn't a funeral, nothing. 
and um, you know, and in in grief there is anger, uh, among other things. But it took me a lot of years to figure out what to do with all of that. And one of the things I did was get a degree in psychology. But I ended up learning about what does need to be spoken of and how to speak out loud about it, which may not go over all that well with some of my family members. But um, but we pick and choose. And so people from all over the world come to see us and we work with them so that they, they can speak up about and, and with their anger in a way that's productive, that's healthy, uh, because anger is it's sometimes called the guardian of our boundaries. So somebody steps over your boundaries, walks all over you or somebody you care about or something you care about. We're supposed to speak up. If people don't say anything or just pretend like everything's fine, nothing ever gets resolved. And so people who come our way typically uh, either hold their anger in or it comes out sideways through manipulation or being passive aggressive or, or sarcastic or what have you. Or it builds up and all comes out at once. Right. And I grew up in a family where I got to see all of these things. And um, and so I wanted to learn more about that uh, growing up. And I actually was running anger management groups and learning about this as I was doing it for quite a number of years. And really, if I look at it now, I'm, I'm still continuing to learn because I don't think we ever get all this stuff figured out completely but if i look at myself compared to 25 years ago when i started doing anger management groups i can say well i catch myself quicker i I don't uh lose it in the same way i am better at apologizing i'm better at learning from things but we're not seeking perfection here we're seeking growth and learning and uh, a lot of people that are perfectionists come our way, <laughs> but, uh, um, and, uh, and some of that perfectionism can, can help them, but taken too far, it ends up sabotaging things. So, so I'm hearing you say, I mean, it really is systemic how we learn to deal with feelings. I think you're talking about breaking it, uh, some of those rules in your family of origin, but our society too seems to have spoken and unspoken rules about feelings. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, presenting as someone who doesn't get angry or you know you're in control of your feelings is considered good somebody who who is feeling a lot is considered and i'm generalizing of course but on the weak side or out of control out of control not valued emotional Mm -hmm. yeah and so you know that graph i'm sure you know the graphic of the iceberg right Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. here's here's your anger here's the the tip of the iceberg outside the water and and here's the story all about it but underneath there are all these other feelings and so i wonder if you can tie it in for our listeners how the present even though you're presenting perhaps as angry because some boundary got crossed how all of those feelings underneath are involved and yet no one's being taught how to access or that that's a good thing to to express yeah so i definitely grew up in a in a family that numbed from all of those feelings or they would all come out all at, all at once when and neither one of those serves us i mean there's a time and a place and sometimes we need to hold things back but um so many of us 
men and, and women as well, just learn to numb or disconnect from the body. And the emotions are very physical in us. And you go, when somebody's really angry, they often feel it in their chest as a constriction, heat rising up in them. But if they could hit a pause button and look behind the anger, usually they would feel some combination or notice some combination of shame, of anxiety, of fear, um, fear that things aren't going to work out the way they want. Uh, sometimes there's overwhelm. Um, but certainly in, in this time of the pandemic, people don't know how things are going to turn out. And people will spend so much time paying attention to things that they don't, uh, that they don't have any control over. That usually leaves us elevated, leaves our heart rate up, our blood pressure up, uh, more tension in the body. And generally when people come to see us, uh, there's been some sort of blow up, not all the time, but most of the time the person's done something where they've crossed a line and they feel so bad about themselves that they're willing to phone up the anger management guy right. and, and say, hey, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to hurt the people that I love. I keep on sabotaging my life, my career, my family, and I want to face this instead of avoiding it. Uh, or, or trying to use alcohol or, or any number of other things. Even some people will even try to meditate their way through all of it. But unless we actually face what's there and get to know how it reverberates through our body and through our thoughts uh, and, and ideally get to know the whole history of it within ourselves but also within the family, if we if we take the time to look at all of that, then we can get to know ourselves better. Now, the, the problem with that is that it's typically pretty uncomfortable because we have to look at the things that we are ashamed of, look at the things and talk about the things that we learn not to speak about growing up and face the things that we've done that have um, contributed to the continuing of holding all the anger in or letting it all out. And those things are embarrassing. They're uncomfortable. But unless we're willing to step into that uncomfortableness, we're not going to get anywhere. And then we just stay replaying the same sort of tape loop. Mm -hmm. Would you say that when I'm listening to you speak and everything you're saying is directing, sounds to my ears like it's directing the person inwardly so that there's the outside story and I, I hear it a lot in my practice yeah I'm sorry but it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't a b or c whatever that other yeah. external behavior was that that statement that I just gave you is you know I'd use the words externally referenced they're looking outside to explain the feeling going gee if that didn't happen outside of me um, I wouldn't be feeling this anger and yet, when I'm listening to you speak, I get a sense that you're talking about something else. I wonder if you might just comment on that. Well, in the, whether somebody's coming to see us individually or attending our group, typically we'll go through uh, some of the things that we're going to do, which is look at what you can do about it. We're not going to spend too much time talking about all of the surrounding things about what other people have done or what other people may do or how things might turn out. We're going to look at your response to it. So 
anger isn't the issue. It's what we do with it. So anger can lead us to become focused. It can lead us to become determined. And uh, we can be angry and still connected to our heart, uh, to our you know, intellectual ability, and to the wisdom that's in the body. But we need to take some sort of pause to get there. Right? Usually somebody pushes your buttons or what have you, however you want to, triggers you in some way. Sure, what other people are, are, are do or are going to do will have an impact on you. But your job is to take the pause and do something to slow down so that you can actually connect with what does really matter to you. Because usually when people call, they didn't take that pause. Often they were sleep-deprived, stressed, a whole series of things hadn't gone well over a period of time, and they were holding resentment, uh, frustration, and uh, in some cases, burnout, where they've just been overwhelmed with too many things that are beyond their control, and it leaves them so escalated all the time that they're very close to the edge. And rather than do things such as start taking better care of yourself, slow things down, um, start engaging in things that inspire you again. You know, people get so wrapped up in the problems that they lose themselves. And so I think part of the work we do is help people reconnect with themselves and what really matters to them and act from that place. Uh, Often people have been really escalated for quite a while before they come to see us. And usually that's led to something bad. Let's, right. let's leave it at that. And so what what kind of techniques or what can you offer our listeners? Everybody knows what you're talking about. You just lose it. You're so activated in that moment. Something comes out of your mouth and you don't feel great about it after when you reflect. But in that moment, it is like you said, there's no pause. It's, it's immediate, like a tsunami that comes mm-hmm. spewing out. So what kind of uh, strategies or techniques might you offer our listeners to um, support having that pause? So one of, the, one of the stories I like around that is a guy that came to our group many years ago, and he would describe himself as somebody who would lose it every day. This guy was losing it on somebody. And after the fourth session of the group, he, he came in and said, now I rate everything on a scale of one to 10. He says, you know, I, I can, if I stop and I think to myself, how much will this matter to me in a minute or an hour or a day or a week or a month or a decade from now, you know, the toothpaste cap not being on, uh, you know, not so much really. Most things he said rated one or two at the most. But even things that rated higher, those those things, uh, he had taken the time to stop and actually consider it. And if we take those moments to stop and breathe, we're way more likely to respond wisely. So he says, I wiped out like 85% of my freakouts. Now, he hung on to 15% of his freakouts, so... <laughs> But, again, we're after improvement. We're not trying to be perfect human beings here. We are going to make mistakes. So mistakes aren't the problem. It's what do we do with those mistakes afterwards? Do we 
claim them as our own? Do we take full responsibility for everything that we've done? Do we vulnerably own it and apologize and take responsibility and make some sort of commitment to change? Well, you know, in the house I grew up in, not so much of that commitment to change going on or or owning it. You know, there'd be a big blow up one night in my house. And the next morning I'd be a little kid sitting there eating my breakfast cereal and everybody would just pretend like nothing happened. And for me as a kid, I'm like, awesome, because I just want to be a kid. But the consequence to, to that was that I grew up and tried to replicate that in some adult uh, relationships, and not everybody would go along with me on that, <laughs> which, which was really difficult. What do you mean you're holding me accountable? What the hell? <laughs> so clearly I had a lot to learn, and, um, you know, such as life. We all do. You're offering some cognitive questions in that moment of overwhelm that can lower Mm -hmm. uh, the reactivity. I wonder, though, how does that correlate with what's underneath? If it's shame and hurt and things that were around probably long before this altercation or this moment um, with your partner or with whoever it is outside of you, how do you um, advocate for people to work with their, make friends with their shame Mm-hmm. the moment yeah. that it's activated well and it's uncomfortable and so we definitely spend time talking about how uh, like typically we hold shame right in the solar plexus it is you know right right down here and um anxiety is usually in the belly not always usually you know, fear is in the chest, but we hold things in our shoulders, in our back, and upper back or lower back. Anger is often grinding the teeth, you know, in the jaws. Overwhelm is often, you know, temples, forehead. Um, and, and many, many men, many people grow up really kind of disconnected from their body. Mm-hmm. So we, we definitely want to connect with what does it feel like in your body, what do you notice? And so often I will do uh, a piece of work with, with one man in a group while the others uh, observe. And he'll talk about a situation he's in. And if he did something that he feels really bad about, he'll talk about shame. Now, I think that every emotion, we can do something constructive, something healthy with it, or something destructive or with shame, we often refer to it as toxic shame. Mm-hmm. So with healthy shame, we, we feel it. Well, and, and, and we notice that we're acting in uh, out of alignment with our, uh, our core values, with what really matters to us. Now, we have to be able to be willing to actually look at that. And I'll say to the guy, well, if you had to point to that in your body, where would you point to? Where, where does it feel the most? So he points to a solar plexus. And I'll say, well, what does it feel like in there? Well, it feels like a, like there's a ball in there. And often that ball is really heavy or it's empty. There's pressure. It affects the breathing. And uh, I'll ask about color, about texture, about all sorts of things about it. And then I'll, I'll often say, well, and if it had words what would it say? 
and people will come up with a million different things. And that's part of the interesting thing about this work is I never know what's going to happen next yeah. to these things. Yeah. And, uh, and it makes it interesting. And often the person hasn't really thought about that. So it's really interesting for them. And what they're doing is getting to know their shame. That shame, that feeling in the solar plexus occurred many, many times, but they hadn't really noticed it. Or if they had noticed it, they just attribute it to some sort of discomfort and maybe just turn it into anger or um, disconnection. You know, they, so often it'll turn into anger out or it'll be anger in, right? The person will just swallow it or stuff it down. And so it's so key to get to know, uh, to practice noticing what's going on in your body. Because if we, you know, many people come and they say, well, it just came out of nowhere. One minute was fine. And then somebody said something and I just lost it. Hmm. And I'll say, well, it's, you know, our job is to become, uh, you know, a sleuth here. We're going to investigate this and figure out what are all the things that were behind it. Uh, we don't need to judge any of it. It's just like, let's get to know this stuff better. So, you know, oh, the person hadn't been sleeping for a while, or this thing had been unresolved, or that had been happening. Uh, they hadn't ate, uh, they didn't eat anything that day, uh, um, you know, among other things. Would you say it's activating a belief that they might be disowned from, but that's something that started in childhood, a belief about themselves? Often right behind all that shame, I'm not good enough. Something yeah. happened in childhood. Right. Somebody uh, didn't look after this or didn't support this little kid. And usually, you know, so... So I'll have the person talk about what's going on in the solar plexus, and I'll say, so when you reacted in that moment to your partner, we'll, we'll just say, what was the emotional maturity level of that, that part of you that reacted? Right. And, and sometimes they'll say, 12 or 13. I said, so if you saw a 12 or 13-year-old act like that, would they be acting in a way that was immature or... Oh, yeah, probably. So really, maybe, you know, three or five or six or what have you. And it doesn't matter exactly what the age is, but it is this younger part of us. And usually there's some sort of trauma in the history, some trauma in that person's history, and um, and we can investigate that. And, again, this is not about blaming history. This is about seeking understanding, understanding about what's in us. And yes, people may have done bad things to us and may, we, we may want to hold them accountable. But the work we're doing is about noticing what's going on in the body, how, how we work with that. And for instance, if this person was uh, left alone a lot as a little kid, often the, the, the meaning they make out of that is what's wrong with me that nobody wants mm-hmm. to be around me. And then they become really clinging, for instance. And then when somebody goes to leave them, they feel it's like the end of the world and they, they explode all over the place. And I'll say, oh, okay, okay, so let's have a conversation with this young part of you. And we'll 
put you on one chair and we'll imagine this little kid on the other chair. And what does he look like? He's six, say. And what, what, what is his body language like? What is uh, the look? What's the look on his face? What might be the look in his eyes? Oh, well, his shoulders are kind of slumped forward and he's either looking angry or he's really holding himself uh, looking down at his feet and he doesn't want to look up. I go, all right. And then I'll say, just finish my sentence. What I notice most about you is, and he'll say, uh, you know, the adult part of him will say that you look really down. I'll say, oh, all right, switch. And I'll have him go and sit in the other chair and be the little kid and say, well, of course I look down because nobody likes me. Nobody wants to be around me. So it's a direct experience of something that could be hidden in the body that's always out of consciousness, but you're bringing it into the room. So yeah. that person then wakes up and goes, oh, wow, right? It's it's the layers underneath that they're experiencing. And they feel it. Like it's, yeah. like it usually hits home if they're willing to open up to this. And most people are willing to open up to this. And we'll, we'll continue the conversation. I'll have them speak from the little kid and and uh, eventually get to, and what, what I'm most afraid of is, well, that nobody will want to be around me. And what might happen then is I'll die. I, and, I, and I think that in uh, just the, the history of human beings' existence, most of the time we were like living in caves, if a three or five or six year old was actually left alone, he actually wouldn't last very long, right? He would actually die. And so now the the problem is that he's having that experience as an adult, as if he'll die. And he acts from that three-year-old place. So he acts like a big baby to get, you know, judgmental sounding about it, but he acts with a lot of immaturity and blows up like it's the end of the world when, it isn't actually the end of the world. So uh, at some point I'll have the guys switch back. Well, what, what I'll, I'll typically have them say is what I really need right now is. The child would say what I really need. The child would say, well, I, I, I need a hug. Mm-hmm. I need to feel safe, to feel valued, to feel loved, to feel cared for. And uh, then I'll have them switch back to the adult and say, I'll have the adult say, I'll finish my sentence. The commitment I want to make to you is when I see you feeling really afraid of being alone, that I will hold you, that I will let you know that you're valuable, that you matter, that you're important to me and that I'm going to look after you so that you're not in danger and that you feel safer. And then I'll say, and what I notice about you right now is, from the adult to the kid, well, that maybe the kid's not looking at his feet anymore. I might go back and have the kid say, and the reason I don't trust you is (laughs) because you haven't done that before and you're 46 years old or however old the person is. And And it it continues, right, because people will make the commitment – um, it's similar to to a, a piece that I do with clients too, and mm-hmm. then they'll forget, 
And so they, they actually bury that part because they're wired to bury it. They're wired to move away mm. from that pain that that young part holds. So they forget to do what they just committed to do. And the cycle, if you don't keep illuminating it, it's like you're, you become the, um, the reenactment of what happened to you as a kid right? Somebody make it, perhaps somebody made a promise said, I'll be there for you. Hey, you're okay. And then they don't show up or mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, so do you have tips for at home after this work, they have this realization. I think a lot of people forget. And so is there something that you, um, suggest to people to do to keep this relationship in the mode of healing and giving that child part what it needs? So there's many people around the lower mainland walking around who stop and think to themselves, so the emotional age I'm coming from right now is, (laughs) 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 and we all do this, right? Myself included. Right, right. Right now, I'm about four. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes my wife will say, and your emotional age right now is, and, uh, and she runs the women's group, so. We, you know, we can work with each other on these kind of things and, and um, have a, a laugh about it because, you know, we all act in a way that is childish sometimes. And if we are able to actually really look at this, then we can get somewhere. But it's uncomfortable and it means that we do this over and over again. And the, the analogy I use is, you know, many men will come and attend the, the groups we do. And at the end of the last session, I'll say something like, well, so this has been like you going to the gym for your emotions. And if you go to the gym and you start to get in better shape, do you just stop and go, I'm in pretty good shape, but I don't need to go to the gym anymore. Or, oh, yeah, you have to keep on going to the gym. And that's not a bad thing. It actually feels really good to exercise and to have that. Just like. You need to keep on doing this type of work one way or another. And it may be reading, it may be meditating and breathing, it might be doing all sorts of different things. But if you do nothing, then you will slide back into whatever you were doing before. And nothing is, you know, that that path of least resistance is the most likely future that lies in front of you unless you keep on working on things. The easiest thing is to do nothing but that doesn't serve us or, or the people we love. Right. It's like consciousness, right? You've got it's moment by moment by moment. You don't go, oh, I've achieved it. Now I can go to sleep again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. Um, somebody is in a partnership and their partner is extremely angry and they're afraid. So we're not talking about physical abuse because I know when it's physical, you've got certain mandate. Well, maybe I will ask you about that too, how that's different, but I want to start with the emotional because if, if somebody has a history of trauma and they're feeling terror when their partner's angry, um, both people are involved here. I, I guess my question is to be succinct, what would be your uh, guidance to the partner who who needs to respond and feels like either they swallow and get small or have to puff up and fight. I mean, it's usually fight flight in that moment themselves. Can you offer a response to a person who is bashing you with 
energetic emotion that's angry. So and blaming, let's say. So so part of this is about understanding what happens when somebody really elevates. So the the first part is understanding where your partner is at. If your partner is really losing it, then um, the the term I use is that they've become egocentric, and the the ego is that part of them that has to win, get their way, be heard, be seen, be right, competitive, ambitious. And there's nothing wrong with the ego in, in, in my books. It's just part of what the human condition comes with. And ideally, the ego is uh, balanced by a connection with our heart, a uh, connection with our emotional intelligence, the intelligence in the body, and the intelligence in your head. And if there's a healthy balance then then we're good. The person can still be really competitive and uh, ambitious and still act like a decent human being. But in these moments, it's like all our intelligence uh, and the wisdom in our body and, and our heart is all pushed off to the side and just the ego is running us. And we tend to, if we, we, we escalate towards fight or flight and we tend to dehumanize the other person. We don't see their humanity anymore we're not listening to them or um, looking at it from their perspective if we've escalated but we're also disconnecting from our own humanity and so we disconnect from our heart what really matters to us uh, our core values and uh, if we escalate even more then our pain receptors start to deaden so we don't feel pain but we also don't feel the care for the other person. We don't feel the love and we typically stop feeling shame, right? Shame's garden, guardian of our uh, integrity and shame connects us to our conscience. It reminds us, oh yeah, I don't want to do that. That's, that that'll feel awful afterwards. <laughs> but if we've escalated enough, then, then we don't feel that shame and we're just run by the, the ego, we're, it's like we're numb to our emotions except the emotions that are wrapped around the ego. And that tends to be really dramatic, really all or nothing, like we've got the blinders on. And we tend to use absolute terminology. You always, you never, right? All the blaming and defensiveness is coming up. And we're escalating, and the higher we escalate, the more our emotional maturity level drops, so then we start acting like a big baby again and we blow up because something that's triggered us and usually there's this history from our childhood or even our parents' childhoods, depending, you know, our grandparents even for that matter, something's triggered us, something that we're holding. And then we act from that place. So if one person acts from this egocentric place, it's like an invitation. Come join me. You know, my, my three-year-old is running me, and it's an invitation for the other person's three-year-old to join them. And then they both act like children. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can remember one story a long time ago where I, a couple, and they both ran their own businesses. And one grabbed the other's laptop and smashed it. And so the other one grabbed the other, like, completely counterproductive, right? They smashed each other's laptops, and it's like... And the age we're acting is, right? So people will will go there, uh, but, of, of course, it doesn't serve anybody. And the, the challenge is 
if you see that the other person is in this egocentric place, you don't have to join them. It's good to know the pull in you that wants to join them. We don't want to deny that, but we can act from the adult in us. We can recognize, well, my partner is so escalated. There's no point in having any sort of conversation here. I can, I can, uh, you know, be soothing if that might help, but it might not help. This is not the time to have a conversation about how to have a conversation or argument or uh, how to resolve conflict. What about having boundaries, though, in that moment, especially if to that one who is receiving all this, let's say, Mm -hmm. attack and blame? It's a reenactment. It's their childhood, too. Well, ideally, at another time when both people are calm, that's the time to actually work on this stuff. You know, it's like I've had couples come to see me in my office and one starts completely losing it on the other one in the office. And my response is, you guys are completely wasting your time here because we're, there's no learning is going to happen here because, you know, one person escalates, the other is escalated. They're not, they're, they're just throwing their money away. Right. So, we want to have both people able to, and sometimes they need uh, a guide to help them through this kind of stuff, help them so that they can stay grounded, so that they can open up to look at their own side of things and take responsibility for whatever they've done. And uh, in the first, now in the second session of the groups, we'll have everybody come up with a goal. And for many men and some women, but uh, because we do separate groups for men and for women, uh, for many of the men, the goal ends up being something like, I'm going to give my partner the experience of being really heard and seen and valued. I'm not going to try and fix things. I'm going to make sure that he or she feels really seen and heard and valued And if the other person actually just gets to speak and feel heard, things are going to go a lot better nine times out of ten anyway. I mean, no guarantees. But their historic response has often been to try and fix it, Mm -hmm. to not really give that person their ear because that's not what they grew up seeing and witnessing. And so their default is not really to listen even though that's actually what serves them, even if at work they're really good at listening. At home, uh, maybe completely different. So we didn't quite land in what would be an effective or helpful, maybe that's a better word, helpful response for the partner who's not yet in their child, their, uh, their, their partner's coming at them way over the top, I mean, let's say choices, even if we brainstormed it. One is you don't say anything. Two, you've got to, you say something. What would be a helpful thing to say in that moment? So it, it makes me think about people phoning uh, customer service reps. <laughs> right? The training they get is, you know, that they really listen to what the other person is upset about. And then they say, Wow. So what you're saying is that you're upset about this and this and this. Is that right? You reflect that. I would be really upset too if that happened to me. All right. And let's find a way to fix this. 
you know, with the customer service rep, you know, ideally it's like, and I'm, I'm going to make sure that I stay with you until this is done. Oh, it's Which, the best. Nothing like a good customer service rep who just keeps right. going, hey, I totally get it. I'd be upset too. I love it. when, yeah, Even right. though I know they're doing it, it's like, yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is very different than, oh, I'm going to have to transfer you to this department right. over here, and then they transfer you somewhere right. else. Or it's not our fault. <laughs> that, that, that's right. <laughs> that's the worst one. <laughs> so in the moment, it's really giving that person your ear and allowing them, you know, ideally uh, having some empathy, some compassion, and just hearing them out without trying to fix them will help the other person feel heard and seen whether it's, you know, a combination of the adult and that little kid in them. Um, and then, then they, their heart rate comes down and their blood right. pressure comes down and the tension starts to decrease in their body and their breathing changes. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, yeah, no, super effective. The hard part is if what's coming out of their mouth is about you. Oh yeah, I mean that's it, where it's really hard to to reflect and go. Gee, I feel that way too. If they're talking about you doing it to them, yeah, right. That's a hard thing to reflect. Well, that's right. And you know, from the example earlier, it's you know the guy whose parents weren't around for him often will grow up and pick a partner who's not around for him either. Right. And so then you know. He's just recreating all of this. And so it's really hard to step out of that because it's often going down through generations. But when somebody actually will really reflect upon this and see that pattern, then they can start to step back out of it and say, oh, so I can stay being the adult here. I don't have to join them. That's really hard. Right? This is the hard work. Uh, that when people put the hard work in, over the long run, their relationship has a has a chance to actually work. Um, and and it, what you're what you're talking about would be helpful to any relationship, even if anger wasn't the the top issue. I mean, you're really talking about a level of accountability and responsibility and maturity that includes mm-hmm. kindness and empathy, right, as a foundation. Yeah. So it's going to help everywhere, work as well, right? So a lot of people get sent to us from their work, whether it's a doctor, a nurse, a librarian, a, what, you know, whatever, a construction worker. And the, the experience of the boss uh, is often that when the person comes back to work, that they come back and they act with more maturity. Right. They're not reacting as much. They're taking their time because they can see that, the other is acting in a way that's really childish. All of a sudden they have this different lens to see these things through and they get really good at that only if they get to know their own childish responses, their own reactions that have been really poor and really own that stuff. Then they're not as drawn into that around others and it's a lot easier at work compared to at home. Right, the people that are mm-hmm. at home are the closest to you, and there's the the most emotional intensity there. Somebody said uh, once, like, "Well, how come they're so good at, you know, how how come my family's so good at pushing my buttons?" Well, they installed those buttons in the first place. Of course, they're good. 
It's their job. <laughs> Your job is to try and learn through that right. intensity, and that's hard, yeah. right? I mean, and evolve the system because when you learn it, the whole family system can evolve, right? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the so, opportunity is there. You're modeling yeah. something different that didn't exist before, so yeah. at least it's there, Absolutely. as opposed to reaction, right? Yes, and and so really amazing changes can take place. Uh, when one person changes within a system, it invites others to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may, they may not, but. Let's dive into some of the group work, because I know we've only got about 10 minutes left. Um, and your, your work, why, I'm a big fan of group work for a number of reasons, but I wonder, you know, listeners are, are thinking, well, especially because there is shame around it, Tell me the value. What is the value of working in a group? And in your case, in a particular, you're separating them by gender. So the value of both group work and working, uh, men working with men. The, uh, the value is that men get to witness other men talking about this stuff. I was running a group recently online, and one of the first guys to talk in the group was really vulnerable and opened up. And it was because of him opening up and just being really honest about what he had done and what was happening in his life that really moved other men in the group. And then the next guy opens up and says, you know, I haven't even told my girlfriend that. Right. I, I never talked to anybody about that. But because you said that, I felt like it was safe enough. Yeah. And in general, the, the guys in the group are just a regular bunch of guys from all sorts of different backgrounds. Often we get guys that run their own businesses like me, because it can be kind of crazy making. Um, But from every background, old, young, rich, poor, you know, from, you know, sometimes it looks like the United Nations in there. Um, So we get to learn from each other and the words that men hear from each other can be really powerful one of the one of the things we do in the beginning is in many groups is we do a check-in. And uh, years ago, I used to co-facilitate the women's group. And we're doing this check-in. And this one woman, and probably in her early 20s, looks really innocent. You know, it doesn't look like she'd be in an anchor management group. And, and her check-in was, well... I came to this because I thought it would be cheaper to uh, to give you my money for this group than to break more shit. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody cracked up, right? Nobody saw that coming out of her. But she knew she wasn't the only one, or she wasn't the only one that had broken things. And that made it okay for other people to start talking about things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, typically the people feel a lot less alone when they attend a group because they realize even though intellectually we may understand that when we hear other people and we're right there, even online, people really, it hits home for them them and they, they feel that. And afterwards they feel a sense of relief. There's a little bit more lightness in their body. And usually for session number two, most of the guys in the group or the women will come back and say, you know, things are a little better. You know, everything hasn't been solved, but 
things are moving in a better direction because I'm listening more, I'm noticing more in others and myself. Uh, there's a little bit less judgment in me because I'm really paying attention and noticing what's happening in my body and noticing what happen, what's happening in somebody else for the tension and the facial expression. And so they feel more in charge of themselves and less reactive. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit. Right? We're not trying to solve everything uh, all at once. But, uh, so you have a check-in power. portion. You have um, an educational component because we've already talked about that. Yep. Um, what else do you want to say? How long? Are, what's the length of the group? How many uh, they're, participants? They're usually six uh, two-hour sessions, like one evening a week, 6.30 to 8.30. Um, and, and we do a checkout at the end so everybody hears from each other a little bit. Usually there's uh, 8 to 10 or 12 participants, and um, and people are usually surprised that that they end up actually enjoying the whole group. Many people actually come back and take the group again because what they found was when they were attending the group, they were paying a lot more attention. They had this stuff in the front of their mind, and that's the challenge is through the week, often guys will – do really well for a few days and then then they'll sort of you know relapse or what happened yeah, yeah. and and then the, the challenge is all right so how can you keep this stuff in the front of your mind every day what right. what can you do oh well getting enough sleep in is going to help a lot making sure you have enough to eat will help a lot if you get some exercise do whatever inspires you so we, we talk about the, the, all of the stuff that's around anger so that people are better prepared for when the anger comes up because the anger isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Somebody comes to me and says, oh, I never get angry. I say, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that must really suck because probably people are going to walk all over the person. Right. People are, you know, I mean, it's not that we need to be angry all the time, but Anger doesn't equal aggression. Right. Anger is just that part of us. It's, it's an enlivening part of us. That means it's like a big exclamation mark. Like we need to pay attention. Something's going on here. And let's notice that in ourselves and the other person. Do you think there's a correlation between anger and passion? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. If somebody never has any anger... You know, I mean, really, are they alive? We need that aliveness. We mm-hmm. and, and and again, it doesn't mean that there it turns into rage or aggression or hostility, but we need to feel fully alive. And and if we numb our anger, we down our anger. It's like we down everything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's more like we want to connect to our grief, our loss, our sadness, our fear, our pain, our joy or love, or, you know, whatever the the emotions are, we want to be consciously choosing what to do with them, but noticing how they, uh, because all the emotions want to do is, is be expressed. And if we express our emotions well in the right place at the right time with the right person for the right reasons, you know, then it's good. 
So we're going to put all this information about you and your groups up on consciouslivingradio.org, but maybe tell our listeners, too, where they can find out more if they're interested. Angerman.online or angerman.ca is the website, and there's all sorts of stuff on the resources page there. There's all sorts of videos and podcasts and and articles, and we're on Instagram at Moose Anger Management and Facebook. Uh, so there's lots of ways to find us uh, on the internet. Is uh, it important if you can answer in just a, a couple of sentences for men to keep men accountable in terms of behaving in integrity in this way, the way we're talking about here? Yeah, well, I, I think it's really being honest with yourself, really being honest and uh, about how your behavior is impacting others and yourself and we need to be able to have a conversation about it if we're going to be accountable. Really an honest conversation. And that, that means being vulnerable. And so we have to be vulnerable to open up to other people and to ourselves. And there's a, a, it takes a great deal of strength to do that. It takes a lot more maturity to step into that than to stuff it all back down or to ignore it or pretend like nothing's there. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we've been speaking with Alistair Mose, Moose Anger Management. And again, all the information will be online, consciouslivingradio.org, and catch the show on FM 100.5 Co-op Radio in Vancouver. Bye. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm happy for you, I'm smiling for you, I'd do anything for you, for you. It's always for you, and never for me, and I need it to stop, so let me tell you please. I'm always sad, and I'm always lonely, but I can't tell you that I'm breaking slowly. Closed doors. Locked in, no keys, keeping my feelings hidden, there is no ease. I need it to stop, and I want to be able to open up, but my feelings are fatal. My feelings are fatal. How many times must I keep it inside? I need to let go, and I swear that I've tried. But opening up means trusting others, and that's just too much. I don't want to bother, so I'll keep it inside, and I'll bury it deep. I know it's not healthy, but you won't hear a peep, though I'm always sad. And I'm always lonely, I can never tell you that I'm breaking slowly. Closed doors, locked in, no keys, keeping my feelings hidden, there is no ease. I need it to stop, and I want to be able to open up, but my feelings are fatal. Oh, 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 oh. My feelings are fatal. Oh, 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 oh,